Hi, this is Tim Lear, Director of College Counseling at the Pingree School, and you are at the point of learning with my friend for over 25 years now, Peter Horn. I know Pete has been facilitating hard conversations with adults as well as students for the past two decades. So when Pingree needed some help with civil discourse and dialogue, Pete was the person I called to lead workshops with faculty and students that he customized for us. I'm pleased that some of our students in the Politics Club turned Pete's sessions with them after the January 6th insurrection into an episode for their own podcast. They gave him permission to use it, so that's pretty much what you're about to hear as a special bonus episode of Point of Learning. I mention this in case Pete tries to take all the production credit, like he usually does. But seriously, I think this podcast about what and how and why we learn is so valuable that I became one of the first people to support it when Point of Learning joined Patreon last November. You can join me as a member for as little as $3 a month. Wait a minute. Pete, why am I paying $20 a month? Ah, dude. Oh, I remember. Because it's just that good. If you're listening now, you probably know that already. If you haven't joined yet, hit pause, visit patreon.com slash pointoflearningpodcast and choose the membership tier that's right for you. It only takes a minute. Thanks, and enjoy the show. On today's show, this guy. Thinking about civil discourse as truth-seeking, in other words, it's not thinking about it as a debate. You know, not thinking about it as uh, an exercise in winning, uh, which is one of the reasons that I think it requires practice. It involves inviting somebody else in that you trust to say, help me think about this difficult topic. You know, whatever it is, I want to explore it. I've got some ideas about it, but I am also going to run the risk of changing my mind. And a group of smart, curious high school students posing thoughtful questions about the hows and whys of civil discourse. My question kind of pertains to facilitating discussion within a group setting where there are obvious political divisions, Mm -hmm. um, however extreme or not. That's right. One of my favorite topics charged with one of my favorite sources of insight, students. I think it's unfortunate that facts for politicians specifically have become not exactly factual. So I think it's easy to become wary of like when politics becomes so deeply rooted in like, you know, statistics, for example. And when a person that may not exactly be qualified is talking about them, but if they do their homework, it's incredibly impressive. Uh, If we're talking to people like in a group setting, for example, or even on social media, because like, you know, we see a lot of like arguments on uh, Twitter now. So in these kind of like indirect interactions or or or, uh, spheres where there are other people present, how do we kind of like effectively converse because i'm reluctant to use the word debate because i don't think it's a debate kind of format but how do we like converse or arrive at a compromise all that and much more on this special bonus episode of point of learning This bonus episode of Point of Learning is a departure from the usual format of me interviewing someone else. 
As Tim laid out a minute ago, what you're about to hear is pretty much what took place in an after-school meeting of the Politics Club of the Pingree School in New Jersey. When I showed up for the session via Zoom, Club President Marcus Brotman asked if it was okay to record the meeting for the Pingree Politics podcast, available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and I'm sure some others. Well, of course, he had me at podcast. I'm pleased to be able to share it with you, not just because it's about one of my favorite topics, civil discourse, by which I mean respectful discussion or speech or writing focused on shared concerns. Cultivating civil discourse as a critical capacity of citizenship that schools all too often ignore completely is a through line of my career as an educator, but I'm also stoked to share this because Despite that I'm featured prominently, the entire show is really an expression of student voice, another through line of my career. Students invited me to this meeting, it's their questions that drive the flow of the show, and of course what you're about to hear is a student-produced podcast. Full credits at the end. This meeting took place in January, just a few days after the January 6th siege of the Capitol. Marcus sent me a list of questions in advance to shape my introductory remarks, like how I got into consulting, what I believe are key problems in the ways we talk to one another, what solutions I recommend, how to talk with people who believe in a different set of facts, how social media figures into the mix, and and so on. I hope it goes without saying that I was thoroughly impressed with this group of teenage citizens, but I'm also gratified that the episode they're allowing me to share can give you some sense of the work I most like to do when I'm not making podcasts. I can't let you listen in on a leadership coaching session, and you certainly don't want to hear me compose a survey or analyze interview data. Plus, there's almost nothing I enjoy more than talking with and listening to young people. The sound quality will be a little different from other episodes of Point of Learning thanks to Zoom audio, but I do think you'll dig it. And so, without further ado, today's host, Pingree Politics Club President, Marcus Brotman. What's up? I'm Marcus Brotman, and you're listening to the Pingree Politics Podcast. On today's episode, we talk with Dr. Peter Horn of Horn Ed Consulting. Dr. Horn is a fellow podcaster with his podcast, The Point of Learning. There... He tries to deal with how and why we learn and hopes to improve the learning experience for kids and adults alike. Following the Capitol building attack, it is important more now than ever to be able to talk with those you disagree with in a cordial manner, whether those be friends or loved ones. We talked with Dr. Horn today about trying to find methods or strategies to engage with others civilly and in a meaningful way. So uh, welcome, everyone. Uh, we have, we're really happy to have Dr. Peter Horn on the podcast with us, or really just to have a discussion. Uh, Mr. Horn, if you'd want to introduce yourself, tell us who you are. Absolutely. It's such a pleasure to be with you. What I wanted to do for the format of this meeting, it's such an honor to be with you, first of all. So thank you for inviting me. I want it to be as interactive as possible, okay? And so, and, and please, and I will make sure that I um, indicate what the content of is of these slides. I think based on your uh, excellent questions, Marcus, that's kind of given me an idea to get my wheels turning just to get started here. Um, and I thought, especially as people are coming in, 
um, I might uh, just give a few thoughts uh, as a kind of overview of some things that might be uh, relevant, given the kinds of things that you're interested in, thinking about civil discourse and framing it as truth-seeking. Um, and I'd like to do this maybe for 10 or 15 minutes, but I really want it to be as interactive as, as possible. Like I want the session to be as interactive as possible. Uh, I just wanted to relate some of the things that I thought would be relevant, you know, based on your questions, as a way to begin. Um, and then uh, I hope everybody's got their chat window up. I've got a way that I can see it here. Um, so please feel free to use that at any point. Um, if we find it useful to do a breakout later, we really just want to make sure that we're talking about the kinds of things that are of great interest to you. This is absolutely of great interest um, to me. I wanted to, so, so to begin with this, I wanted to think about it, and, and I was just hearing a little bit about what you do, and I'd maybe like to hear a little bit more uh, in a few minutes about the format of how you usually do a, like a politics uh, session where you say we're going to talk about this particular topic. Because this is really how I got interested in uh, this as a, as a, as a teacher, uh, which I'll mention uh, in, in just a moment a little bit more. Um, but thinking about civil discourse as truth-seeking, in other words, it's it not thinking about it as a debate, you know, not thinking about it as uh, an exercise in winning, uh, which is one of the reasons that I think it requires practice. Um, it's, it, it, involves, it, uh, it involves inviting somebody else in that you uh, trust. Um, to say, help me think about this difficult topic, you know, whatever it is, I want to explore it. I've got some ideas about it, but I'm also going to run the risk of changing my mind. So like, so imagine, for example, you know, turning to the guy behind you in line at Panera, who's trying to figure out what he wants to order. And you say, hey, while you're figuring that out, do you think capital punishment should be abolished because it's racist and arbitrary and makes mistakes? Um, you know, the, the conversation would not go well because it's missing some of the things uh, that you need in order to do actual civil discourse. How I got into this was after 18 years as a school teacher uh, and a school leader right down the road from you guys in Westfield, uh, Westfield High School. Some of you guys familiar with Westfield. Um, I loved it, but I always was interested in trying to think about, you know, new ways to approach teaching and learning and how to leverage some of the things that I'd figured out to work with other groups besides just my own students, besides just my own colleagues. Um, and so about five years ago, I got into education, consulting, and research. I'd always be happy to talk with you more about that. But I wanted you to see that there's a, you know, that there's a website there, there's a link. You can always reach out to me through the website, or I just wanted to share this with you as well, hornedconsulting at gmail.com, if you want to drop me a line about something, so that this is not just a one-off conversation. If, it, if something occurs to you later, if I could be of assistance with you uh, for some other topic that you're taking up, please don't hesitate to reach out. The thing I miss most about not being in a school every day is having the chance to work with students. And y'all are my favorite uh, aid group by far. I was always working at the uh, high school level. So I would love it. What I started to do in my first few years, uh, I always found myself gravitating uh, toward um, the kinds of uh, topics in class that would might be you know interesting, but especially when the national climate changed. I'm saying after September 11th, 2001 in particular, I just had a sense that there were students who were really interested in talking about issues and, and listening to other people's viewpoints about issues that they didn't necessarily know how to make sense of the world in some ways, because that was a you know pretty uh, dramatic event. So if you can see at the bottom, this is a poster um, that uh, has to do uh, that came out after I left. This is a group that I started in 2002 as a means, um, it was in the winter of 2002, um, for students to, to come and have a space after school to hear what other people had to say 
um, and not to frame it as a debate, but rather like, what are you thinking of? So this is a poster uh, for an event a couple of years after I left. You may remember the confirmation of Justice Kavanaugh um, that that made, you know, that that was, you know, that was a tremendous, you know, controversial issue. Um, so this was a poster related to making space for people to be able to talk about that. Um, this is again from the group that I began in 2002 um, under a different name, but it's under, uh, it's called Agora. Uh, right now, which is after that um, that Greek word for um, you know a commonplace, almost like a, a marketplace um, where people could come together to talk. So this was really, in addition to my work as an English teacher, this was something I always felt that was important to be able to make a space for students to um, and, and all members of the community. I'm sorry, members of the community as well. It wasn't just for students. Uh, we would ha often have almost as many faculty as students. You know, 30 or 40 people coming. Again, but in a spirit of 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 listening, you know, you weren't giving, you know, you weren't standing up and giving speeches. You were saying, you know, this is what I think about this. This is what I wonder about this. Here are my questions going forward, because um, there isn't, you know, as you guys know probably better than anyone, um, there aren't lots of great spaces to do this. All right, so I just thought it's a good idea to begin with a pop quiz. So I want to ask you. Um, I'm just kidding about that. That's not necessarily a great way to endear people. But uh, what is the what is the roots of politics polis like a people group exactly like such as you might find in a city like that's really the root like a city state is the polis so you have like indianapolis minneapolis that that greek suffix on there that greek root at the end of it um is means city and in greece like this is athenian democracy like that's how you talk about somebody who was interested in the concerns of other people Polites, that's how they would describe it. So that's polites with a long A. Um, that's how they would talk about, I'm interested in the concerns of the city, which is to say the concerns of the larger group, not just myself. That's how Greeks would talk about those people. I'm polites. If you only cared about yourself, you know what you were. That's right. It's an idiot. So these two words up here, polites and idiotes, um, the word idiot that we use casually in a lot of different senses to have a lot of different meanings, it's changed over the years. Uh, but the root sense of it was you're only concerned with yourself. So like your idiosyncrasy um, is something that you ju just you do. Your idiolect is the way that you speak. And of course, your ideology is the way that you look at the world, make sense of the world, the logic of the world that you yourself impart to it. That has that same root. But if you're just concerned with yourself, you are technically um, an idiot. So, you know, and again, not that name calling is going to be a way to begin anything. It's, it's not. It's just I find that interesting because politics, of course, gets a dirty name. You know, people talk about playing politics and so forth. I love that you all, or that many of you, you know, who would go to the club would associate yourself with this term because I think it needs some rebranding in this moment. I think politics can be wonderful. It can be about saying, you know what? These are shared issues of common concern. Um, so I wanted to lay out, Marcus, uh, for those of you um, who may not know, Marcus uh, sent me a, you know, a, a list of, of questions and perhaps he you know, talked with you, did a little bit of crowdsourcing on that. Um, but talking about, you know, asking one of the things that he asked was some of the challenges that we face. Um, and again, I'm just going to be presenting for a few more minutes here some of the ideas that those questions stirred up in me. And then I really want to hear what you have to say about that or other things that you'd like to, you know, you'd like to throw in. Um, but one of the things that's, you know, one of the things that's important to remember is that, you know, one of the challenges that you'll always find, um, this is, a, you know, Jonathan Swift 
um, the Irish author and clergyman from about 300 years ago. He had this line that I have up on the slide, reasoning will never make a man correct an ill opinion, which by reasoning he never acquired. Um, and a, a more, you know, probably up to the moment way to paraphrase that is that you can't reason somebody, you can't reason people out of opinions that they didn't reason themselves into. In other words, there are some conversations that you cannot have because some people, they're either not, either the, either the timing isn't right, like you're in line at Panera and that's just not what you're supposed to be doing right there, um, or just because it feels emotionally true to them and that's what they're going to hold on to. Um, and it's not something that anybody could disabuse them of. I think it's an important thing uh, you know, to keep in mind because, and it's important to remember that we all have these things. We all have some opinions, some judgments that are, you know, we kind of believe that we are scientists always kind of looking at the data and reasoning to the right conclusion. But if you listen to my conversation with Jonathan Haidt, um, you know, you recognize that part of the way that we're wired um, is to, you know, come up with a viewpoint and then afterwards go look for evidence, go look for those websites nowadays, um, websites, articles, people who will support that point of view and that kind of reinforces that cycle. Sometimes we didn't get there by thinking, and so just by thinking, we can't come out to it, uh, out of it. So it's important to recognize that the civil discourse is a specialized kind of situation. It's not for everything. I think another important thing to recognize when you're trying to have these conversations is that all points of view, I mean, I'm sorry, that all points, I don't mean to say that every single point of view, some people have some, you know, some really horrible, uh, you know, points of view, but the political orientations, you know, we tend to counterpose liberals and conservatives, for example. Um, I think it can be very helpful to remember that these are really orientations, you know, ways of looking at the world and that everybody brings something to the table. Um, there is, so for example, one of the easiest ways to distinguish between liberals and conservatives would be like, what is your attitude about change? And liberals are sometimes, again, if you overlap them with progressives, right? Um, there tends to be an openness to change. There tends to be a, a willingness toward, you know, an orientation that says, let's try something new. Let's reform something. Uh, whereas conservatives, just in the root of conserve, right? The orientation technically, you know, tends to be you know, let's not make change just for change sake. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. I'm going to be a little bit more hesitant toward that. We need both kinds of those orientations in order, especially to think about something difficult. Um, so I think that's one of the most important things in your club, in your classroom, on your team, wherever you happen to be practicing civil discourse, if you get yourself into a conversation, is to recognize that these different orientations really, you know, bring something different to the uh, table and something important. It's very important to have um, those different perspectives. Um, ideological diversity or viewpoint diversity is one of the very important types of diversity that we don't often talk about, um, but it's an important one. Um, another thing is to recognize, and again, we're very easy, we, we, as Jonathan Haidt jokes, like we're, we're really easy, it's really easy for us to see that other people have biases and prejudices but we don't tend to recognize our own biases and prejudices. And that's very important to do. You know, we tend to have different standards. Um, you know, if, if, it's, if there's an idea that we, that we like, that we like, um, you know, we, we say, oh, you know, if there's, a, if there's a website that we like, maybe we can say like, can I, could, I, could I believe this? Can I believe this? Yeah, okay, okay. Uh, where if it's some, whereas if it's something that we don't like, we often ask ourselves a different version of this question, say, must I believe it? You know, um, if it's a different point of view, we, we all of a sudden have a different kind of orientation. And I think it's important to recognize that this is the way humans are wired. 
another dimension is that there is a, you know, there's a real social aspect um, in that we're much better uh, at staying with our group, with our tribe, with our team. We're much better at doing that as human beings. We obviously evolved from people, from groups of people who were good at, or it's reasonable to assume that we evolved from people who were good at staying in the group um, or else, you know, we wouldn't be here now. So, you know, the, the, the loners and so forth, uh, people who didn't depend on a sense of relatedness, a sense of belonging, did not do as well in a harsh environment. And so that's part of the way that we tend to be wired. So even if some, some members of my group do some really awful things, sometimes I can still cling to that group affiliation because it's better than being off the team. Okay. I think this is, you know, this is one of the things that is, you know, is, you know, is very important in this particular moment. And you are, you know, in the news right this very week, um, right since last Wednesday with social media companies objecting to trend. This is not a slam, uh, you know, on, on President Trump, you know, demonstrable falsehoods have been part of his, um, you know, rhetoric. And this is not, you know, this is not news and that part's, you know, not, not debatable. Um, but, what the role of social media companies in terms of saying, well, maybe we should regulate this more and when they're changing and what might change with a different oversight in the Senate, for example. Um, these things are coming to the fore because it's so difficult nowadays um, to uh, you know, get decent information. And if you saw, you know, I'm not just gonna do a commercial for my podcast, although I'd love to uh, have you guys check out uh, The Point of Learning with Peter Horn at any point that you want. Um, the episode, a couple before the Jonathan Haidt episode, I talked with a, an education historian named Jonathan Zimmerman, and he laid out this, you know, he laid out this line that I never thought the question of what is a fact would become the most important question in our political culture, but it absolutely has become the most important question in our political culture, which is to say some of you probably know that line of the late Senator, New York Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan that said everybody's entitled to their own opinions, but not their own facts, or he probably said his, um, you know, but not his own set of facts. The part of the problem with our discourse right now, part of the problem with the proliferation of internet sources um, is that there doesn't seem to be in some conversations a standard bearer. Um, and so that's one of the things, of course, that you have to establish if you're going to talk about something. You have to be able to agree to these sources are going to be you know, reliable for us to be able to have this conversation, that we, we both agree that this is okay, or we agree that we're going to challenge them along the same lines. And toward this, I would direct you to allsides.com. Um, if this is if, if this is something that might be interesting for you to check out um, as a an independent organization that was founded by somebody with a very progressive history and somebody with a very conservative history who came together and said like how can we get better at this um, talking about media and media sources and so this website um, allsides.com might be useful as a tool for you either in conversations or in classes or in your own research just to be able to try and begin to rate and evaluate. Um, it's an interesting website because it also, you know, takes up particular, you know, actually the main thing it does is take up particular topics and then present different kinds of coverage on that topic. Um, but without a shared starting point, you know, without a shared reality that you and the other people you're trying to discuss it with, or you and that other person can discuss it with, you cannot, you cannot have a, a productive conversation. So anyway, these were some of the things and I really, you know, don't want to talk at a clip any longer than that. 
um, you know, these are the things that I wanted that uh, Marcus's questions stirred up in me. Um, and so I wanted to lay those out as kind of, you know, just a, you know, a, a, a starting place for us. Um, and I wanted to see if either uh, in the, you know, either in the chat or speaking out, um, you'd like to follow up on any of that? Is there anything that you'd like, um, you know, I, I, I went kind of uh, quickly, anything you'd like other elaboration of, or are there any other kinds of challenges, you know, that you're, that you're facing that you'd like to discuss? Recently, you know, we see a lot, and maybe this isn't recently, maybe this has been going on much longer than I think, but, um, you know, politicians have delved much more into determining like what is factual and what is not factual now it feels like. And I was wondering, do you think that politicians exactly have that obligation to, to like disseminate what is true and what is not true? Like, do you think that that's a dangerous game to play? Because, I mean, they could lie. So do you think that that's their role, in your mind at least? Yeah, you're talking about like people discussing a particular issue. Uh, they might go on like a Sunday morning show or like when they're debating in the House or something and say like this is a, you know, this is factual or not. Yeah, like so in speeches, for example, they'll talk about something that arguably they aren't exactly qualified to talk about. Like, for example, talking about climate change when their knowledge of it may be rather slim. I'm just wondering, do you and then they go on to say something like that's a fact. Do you think that that's exactly their place to do that? Well, you, you know, I, I think that, you know, my, uh, my, my feeling about politicians is that, you know, they, they, part of the nature of the job, you know, uh, if you're going to be talking about like, because another, another thing that that root polis leads to is policy, right? And they're not just like, if you're a congressman, you're not just going to, congressperson, sorry, you're, you're not just going to be making choices about that little area of policy that you might have a specific background in. You know, somebody might come as an educator. And so maybe they do have a kind of on the ground understanding of educational issues, but they're also going to be asked to talk about defense if this is at the national level, right? They're also going to be asked to talk about the environment. And so they do have an obligation, I believe, um, you know, to find out to learn, to do their homework and to become as educated as possible. I think they have an obligation, you know, for me as a citizen, I'm always more impressed when people do have sources and footnotes and things that I can check, you know, on their website, if they're laying out a policy proposal, remember the joke about, you know, the, the, the kind of, it wasn't a hilarious joke, but the quip about, you know, like Elizabeth Warren, I've got a plan for that, you know, and you could go to Elizabeth Warren's website and she had very detailed, you know, plans that were footnoted and you had sources um, saying like, these are the sources that I'm going to in order to, you know, back up these things. I would much prefer that, you know, that people are honest about what they know and what they, you know, don't know, sure. Uh, but that's, you know, it could be a little bit of a political gamble, but I do think that there is a, you know, I do think there's an obligation to, to, to show your work and to say where you're coming from. Um, yeah, does, is that? No, absolutely. That answers my question. Yeah, it's, it's, and I absolutely agree. I think, I think it's unfortunate that facts for politicians specifically have become not exactly factual. So I think it's easy to become wary of like when politics becomes so deeply rooted in like, you know, statistics, for example, and when a person that may not exactly be qualified is talking about them, but if they do their homework, it's incredibly impressive. I mean, your Elizabeth Warren example it's like going to our webpage and seeing if very detailed is, is an impressive thing. Yeah, I'd agree. Um, I had a question. Uh, first, I guess I just want to thank you for taking the time to talk to us today. Um, uh, my pleasure, man. Thank you. Um, and so my question is sort of about, like, given the nature of today's political climate, which is very polarized, um, and people tend to be very sort of entrenched in their ideals. Um, you had this slide about how you can't use reasoning 
um, to sort of change someone's opinion when their opinion was uh, not really created by reasoning. Um, could you sort of like elaborate or explain like how, like what's what are the first sort of steps we should take to to prevent to either like sort of pro- prophylactically prevent people from being super entrenched in these ideals early on or um, like, is there anything we can do after the fact to actually change their mind? Yeah, I think it's great. And, and, and this isn't to say that I was just trying to set up a reasonable expectation to, to let people know, to, you know, just to be aware that there's some things you're not going to be able to convince some people of, right? But if you get to that point, you know, and, and, some, and, and there was a question in some of the preliminary conversations that Mr. Lear and I had, you know, we we're talking about, you know, I think we all have this. I think we all have family members, like people, you know, if we don't love them, we're supposed to at least, you know, but like, you know, like people that we're like close to, right, who have very different ideas about, you know, the world. Um, and so I would say if you get into that situation to try to use that relationship, whatever relationship it is that you have to try to turn down the temperature and say, like, you know, make sure it's clear in whatever way that you can signal or say explicitly, like, look, man, this is not, you know, this isn't a contest. I'm not trying to prove you wrong. Um, I really I want to understand where you're coming from. Like, I hear you say X, right? And to me, I'm just thinking, like, I, how could, you know, how could somebody look at this question this way? Or how could somebody vote for this person? Um, but I, I, I really, but I respect you. And I really want to understand where you're coming from. How can you help me understand, you know, how you're looking at this? Um, you know, I think that kind of general, like, attitude and orientation, right, is always going to be better uh, than the kind of thing that, that that sets it up as some kind of combat and makes it us versus them. That's the reason I changed that title, Marcus, uh, the Jonathan Haidt episode to us plus them, uh, because it's so often us versus them, right? That uh, it's not a contest. And to say, you know, and, and even to go back to Sean's point about um, sources, right, or, or facts, right? Uh, that can also be a less combative way to get at it and just say, like, where did you read that? Or where did you hear that? You know, help me, like, what sources are you using, right? Like, you know, who, where did you hear that? You know, <laughs> just basically as a play to begin. But again, the tone is very important. Not like, where did you hear that? You know, but like, you know, again, in an earnest kind of, and, and again, that's that's part of the reason I used maybe that, you know, flip and fast Panera example at the beginning um, to say, like, you have to be in a space where you can take a few minutes, um, and, there, and you have to be in a place where you're also sensitive to the social dimensions, where you, especially Avi, if you're comfortable talking about politics, right? Because this is something that a lot of people shy away from, right? You know, one reason is that they've seen it done so badly in so many places, right? Like a decent political conversation makes pretty bad television, right? Because like usually a political conversation is somebody like like saying things they already believe, right? And they, they could be like arguing back and forth, whatever. Like that's going to make decent television if somebody throws a chair or whatever, you know, like that's, that's, that's ratings for you, right? Like stopping, like pausing, thinking about something, like changing your mind, like that's, that's terrible TV, right? Um, it, you know, and so we don't have a lot of examples of how this can be done well. And so if you're known to be somebody who like reads the newspaper or whatever, thinks about these things a lot, somebody could be pretty shy, um, you know, in engaging with you about it. So you must figure out a way to kind of make them more at ease, you know, and that you're not going to demoralize them and also be aware of like the social, you know, dimensions of it, that you're not going to do it in front of like a friend group and it's just going to make them feel stupid, you know, or less adequate. You know what I mean? Does that, does that help in terms of like a little bit of a, a, an approach? Yeah. Thank you. That's like, that's definitely like a really good approach to it. Um, I think that, sort of that makes a lot of sense that like understanding where they're coming from is sort of like the foundation of it um, and making sure they don't feel like attacked or anything. 
And I think it's, you know, it's just important to recognize as well that people, you know, I don't, I don't think this is an adolescent thing. I think people, you know, you'll see adults doing this too, but especially, you know, with your peers, you know, sometimes people will try out ideas. You know, I've got a, I've got a nephew right now. He's just a few years older than you guys. He's all like, you know, he's all libertarian all the time now. Like he's just like, he's trying it out. Um, and it's not that he's been super interested, you know, in politics for a long time, but there's some things that are kind of appealing to him. And so, you know, I'm just listening and, and, and trying to hear where he's coming from and, and what appeals to him about that. Because sometimes people do just, you know, try out an idea, um, you know, and, and I think we should be able to do that. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Um, but the, the danger is when you become so entrenched and just decide that everybody else must be wrong, right? Uh, I'm sorry, I see somebody else. Is it is it Guan? Yeah, hi, yeah, thank you for um, coming here. Um, Sure. I guess my question is kind of almost responding to one of your points you made uh, just just now. Uh, if we're talking to people for, like in a group setting, for example, or even on social media, because like you know we see a lot of like arguments on uh, Twitter now, like especially like you know something that like reminded me of is like a, uh, AOC and Ted Cruz, I believe, got into a bit <laughs> Twitter like a few days ago. So in these kind of like indirect interactions or or, in, or uh, spheres where there are other people present. How do we kind of like effectively converse? Because I'm reluctant to use the word debate because I don't think it's a debate kind of format. But how do we like converse or arrive at a compromise? Well, it's it's a, it's a great question. And what I would say to that is that yeah, pretty much Twitter forces you into a debate. You know, like they, you know, if you see civil di discourse on Twitter, like please screenshot it and send it to me right away because it's just like it's so the the the, the, the Exactly for that public dimension, it's not set up to do that. You know, it's set up that you know, some it's set up for virtue signaling. You know, to say like, look how woke I am, uh, you know, or look how tough I am, or like, you know, whatever the virtue is, right? It's set up for that, and to do it in front of a, you know, it uh, necessarily in front of a group, even if you just at somebody. Obviously, if you're both friends with somebody else, somebody else can see it. You know, so there's there's an audience there. Like, it's just not set up to do that. And so what I would say is if you find yourself in that situation where you really would like to engage with somebody, say, you know, I would like to do it, but let's, you know, this is not the forum for it, you know, and then depending on how you know that person and how you're, you know, comfortable doing it, you know, if emails, anything would be better, you know, like than, than, than doing it, pinging at each other, you know, in, 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 you know, like in crafted comments for public consumption where people aren't replying and it's just like people are keeping score. Um, that's just kind of, it's a nice example of the opposite of what we want. Does that answer your question? Yeah, yeah. Thank you very much. Sure. Yes, please. Uh, Olivia? Yeah. Um, hi. I just want to say thank you again. Um, Pleasure. My question kind of pertains to um, facilitating discussion within a group setting where there are obvious political divisions, mm -hmm. um, however extreme or not. And how do you go about facilitating that kind of discussion when you know that um, people will feel personally attacked? Or how do you go about preventing it? Because... Um, what I've noticed is that a lot of people in these kinds of um, settings start to feel unsafe by someone, just by someone's opinion. So um, how do you go about either navigating that or just trying to prevent it? Yeah, that's, that, that's great. Um, facilitating a discussion is one of the hardest things to do, you know, and that, I'm talking about it like, you know, facilitating a discussion about a, you know, about a non-controversial topic, you know, facilitating a good conversation about a song, you know, for example, it's, you know, or, you know, people could feel some kind of way about that. But I'm just saying like, that is difficult in itself. And then if you add a controversial dimension to it, you've just got levels of difficulty. So God bless you for trying if you're, you know, if you're doing this yourself. But I would say the key thing is the ground rules, 
you know, that you lay out, that you make very clear, um, you know, and, you know, for this, um, you know, to make sure that everybody's there at the outset, right? Like, I'm, I'm, I'm raising this because, like, um, if you're talking about in, in our Zoom world, where unfortunately we, we currently are, um, you know, I have people coming in, you know, a little bit later in that sort of setting, you know, you, you really got to have everybody there at the outset and then decide what, the, you know, and, and lay out some ground rules. So, for example, you know, a very good one to begin with is to say, look, um, the spirit of this is exploring this idea. This, this, this is not a contest, you know, to lay that out. Like, why are you coming together, right? You want to hear other people's views um, and that implicitly, explicitly, you know, every person in this, in this circle has dignity um, and that dignity cannot be impugned. So that means no side conversations, right? Like, like whispering or like, you know, like chatting or whatever we have. No, you know, obviously no ad hominem attacks, you know, like no, you're, you're attacking ideas or you're questioning ideas, you're critiquing ideas, ask, raising questions about ideas, not about the people who hold those ideas so that it's, so that it's, you know, so that's less personal, uh, but no personal attacks or no ad hominem attacks, no generalizations about a particular group, you know, a, you know, a, a, you know, a group of people, um, because nobody likes to, you know, nobody likes to feel like if they're part of that group that they have to answer for everybody or just, you know, and, and, and usually, you know, there aren't too many responsible things that you can say about entire groups either. So to have some things at the outset that you're saying we've, and, and also maybe something like what's said in this room stays in this room or what's said in this space stays in this space, just because it's so easy to misconstrue stuff. If somebody's just like, she said, what, um, you know, it, if it's reported afterwards. So I would think carefully about those and I'd be happy to, you know, talk with you about those. I mean, those are some of the ones that I've used, um, you know, whether it's in one of these discussions or running a gay straight alliance meeting or whatever it might happen to be that have been helpful. I'm happy to, you know, talk more about that. Um, but I also think also in the group, that's a great way to start is to say, so these are some, you know, these are some things to begin. Does anybody else have one that they'd like to add? Um, you know, just so you feel like you've got some ownership in that. Does that help, Olivia? That helps a lot. Yeah, thank cool. you, Carolyn. I see your. I see somebody's raised a hand up there. Yeah, that's me. <laughs> um, first, thank you for coming to us. Like everybody said, and my question is: Do you think there's any like red flags when having difficult conversations? And then one, like, what are they? How do we recognize them? And then how do we tactfully deal with them and like potentially get out of the conversation? Well, that's a great question. So, if if one of those norms has been violated, for example, right? You know, if you agree to say, this is the way we're going to engage with each other. And this is the way we're going to agree to engage with this topic. And then all of a sudden somebody starts, somebody starts like trash talk and throwing shade at another person, right? Like, you know, then, okay. So that's, that would be a red flag that a norm has been violated and just say like, this isn't what we're doing here. What we're doing is hard. That's not it. Okay. Another thing though is like body language. And obviously this is much easier to do in a room, you know, when you're in the space as opposed to on Zoom, especially if you, if you're on Zoom, you can't see people's faces, right? Like I, I would actually never recommend that never for this kind of thing. You at least want to be able to see other people's faces. Uh, but the body language uh, will, um, you know, we'll let you know if you're feeling comfortable, uh, if the other people are feeling comfortable or not, you know, to, you know, to, if, you, if you get a lot of this, if you get a lot of like leaning back, you know, if you're just attentive, um, again, as Olivia was talking about, if you're facilitating that conversation to moderate, you know, that that can be a sign for you. It's not necessarily a red flag. It might be a yellow flag, depending on what the body language is. But I think that's a very important thing to, you know, to pay attention to, because uh, it can mean people are shutting down, uh, or it can mean people are feeling, you know, uh, like it's, like it's not going to go well. Does that help? Yeah, thank you. Sure. 
I guess my question is that like oftentimes, and this is, I guess, a pretty personal experience is like when Marcus and I are leading discussions for the club, mm-hmm. you know, somebody might say something that is like factually untrue. Not like it's an opinion I disagree with, but it's just demonstrably false. But you don't want to shunt the person down right away to be like, well, you just made a false statement, so uh, you can't talk now. And that's obviously not good either but i want to i was wondering like what are your opinions on like regulating factual information in a setting that is you know very much requires it yeah uh it's a it's a it's a, it's a wonderful point one of the things that i would do so first of all you could set it as a norm you know you could say like be prepared to defend any you know claims you know any facts mm-hmm. that you lay out right like you could set it up at the outset to say like, just because people could be getting it from different places, right? right. Uh, the other thing that you could do is decide to harness it, you know, it, it, harness it to a text or a couple of texts. In other words, you could have two excerpts of, you know, opinion pieces or two excerpts of, you know, news pieces, whatever, on a, on a particular topic, or even just one, you know, if you wanted to, it really depends on what you want to do. But it, agree to say, like, we're going to deal with the reasoning involved in here, like the implicit, like what they lay out here, we're going to accept this as, you know, what's going on. Um, that can help. And, and I usually advise that for, I mean, it may not work as well for your, you know, for your purpose. But I will say when we were talking about like the oil for food scandal or something like, you know, doing a topic that people might not have a lot of like top of mind, you know, awareness of, often it was helpful to, to just kind of root it in a text, say where it came from, or a couple of texts, uh, but just say, we're going to stay within the boundaries of this as an exercise and see how well it goes. Um, I mean, that's something I would do if you find it like going off the rails a lot of times, you know, mm-hmm. it's just like untenable. That's a kind of conversational harness that you could use. Yeah, yeah I think that, thank you, I appreciate sure. it. Uh, Marcus has a, has a raised hand. Yes. Yeah, um, it is. I think um, something that co- that comes up a lot in these discussions that we've been having is that the people who need to hear this aren't here. How, yeah, how do you how do you encourage people to join a discussion and to engage with it w- when they're kind of faced with a large majority which disagrees with them? The one and one thing is to rely on your relationship. You know, like if there's somebody that you know, um, you know, like that's always you know that's always a personal thing to you know to get somebody you know, that, that the relationship that you have with somebody to trade on that and say, hey, I think this would be really be interesting to you. Um, and that's one of the things that you could do in the politics club, for example, if you have a kind of a core group who generally come, right, they generally attend meetings, um, you know, you could ask, you know, say like, you know, next session, you know, everybody brings somebody else, you know, one other person. So that like everybody has the charge to bring somebody else here and say like somebody, you know, who should be here, right? You, you can do that. And I think that's that's one of the ways to do it because people do respond to personal invitations, especially ones that, you know, feel sincere. Um, so if you just notice about this poster, one of the things, you know, one of the things that they are kind of built into this, and again, I didn't design this poster, but it, it's a technique that we used to use, you know, to kind of like build in the questions. Like, are you concerned, frustrated, or angry over the, the recent Supreme Court nomination process, because of course the title making sense of politics in America is super broad. Um, So at least to say like, here's, you know, here are some kinds of dimensions of this that we might discuss. And if you kind of target those questions towards some of the people who might feel a certain way, but then kind of, they look at an issue differently from the way that you do. And you know that um, you could kind of maybe draw it in, in terms of the way that you, in terms of the way that you advertise, in terms of the way that you, um, market it to people. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, thank you. I think, um, I think the personal connection is really important to make people feel comfortable in a situation where they normally wouldn't be. 
Yeah, and check in with them. If you do that, you know, make sure you check in with them afterwards, you know, to invite your friends. Just say, like, how was that for you? And, you know, what was that like? Um, again, it could give, it'll give you useful information and also kind of in case because not everybody not everybody does wear their reactions on their sleeve or, you know, you know, usually there's some kind of signal about body language, but you're not necessarily always, you know, paying attention. Um, mm-hmm. So to check in with them afterwards can be very helpful too. Gotcha. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, Zara. Is it, is it Zara? Uh, Zara. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I had a question about, actually, the slide you just had up, of whether these spaces for civil discourse actually attracted people that were Democrat, Republican, or Independent. Because I was when, we, when I was doing research for colleges, yeah. like I would look at what clubs they had, and sometimes there would be these clubs that would say, oh, this is for civil discourse where everyone can come. And then when you go on the website, sometimes the speakers that I would see and like the way they would count, like say for everyone, especially the Republican Party, um, it would kind of attract students that didn't feel like they fit into the mold. And then it would all come up. And then, you know, I was intimidating, I guess, and almost kind of turned me off. And I, that's probably part of me not wanting to engage in that kind of discussion and being scared of it, too. So I was just wondering, you know, specifically in educational spaces, how to legitimately draw in um, everyone. Yeah, absolutely. And, and colleges, you know, college is a little different. It's a, you know, it's a little bit different from high school, but I think some of the same principles apply. Um, you know, to answer the first part of your question, we really did, we really did get, um, you know, people from a range of perspectives, but that's after we'd done it for a while and people in the word got out that that really was what we were doing and encouraging. Um, you know, so for example, I think I mentioned that it started in 2002, shortly after um, the United States, you know, went into Afghanistan. Um, and you know that the first name of the group that we had was a peace was called peace discussion group because the first kids who came and said like i'm really concerned about this or i feel some kind of way right like that was kind of the angle that they were concerned about but then because we called it the peace discussion group there was this perception that we would just be holding hands and singing you know like and, and everybody's going to kind of feel a certain way as opposed to some people who might feel like military intervention is justified right um and so i'm not welcome at this meeting so that was actually part of the way that the reason that we changed to a more neutral name like agora which maybe nobody knows what it means anyway so it's kind of, it's very neutral um it's kind of a blank slate as an abstract term but we wanted to be you know clear about that you know who we were and what we were about um, but that took a little bit of it took a little while and it's and you're absolutely right that some campus groups, um, some groups in, in in high schools, right, will say that they're for political discussion and say that they, you know, they they um, you know welcome all points of view, but there are there are the right points of view, there are the sanctioned points of view, there are the ordained points of view, and it's a little bit like being in that teacher's class where like you have a discussion, but you pretty much are sure what the right answer is. You know what I mean? Right. So that does happen. Um, but it takes but it takes effort, you know, to protect that space and for people to believe, OK, you know, I'm not going to be judged for asking this question or, or putting this out there. But that's something that we're like. But, that you know, even when we had a reputation, we reinforced those messages explicitly every time. Like this is what we're about. This is, you know, this is not about grandstanding. This is not about, you know, like proving how right you are and how much you've read and how smart, you know, like that's not what this is about. This is about exploring this issue, you know, that we've come here to to hear other people's opinions about, or, you know, even if we don't speak, you know, just to, just to listen to, because that was what I think could be a valuable, you know, process too, is that, you know, if you, if you have the experience of thinking about some of these things where other people don't, sometimes you can be a model, you know, or sometimes you look to other people to model, like, how do you approach thinking about this? Like, what kinds of things are involved? 
when you decide something is like right or wrong or worthwhile or not? What are the things that you're taking into account? And I think we all need models, you know, in terms of moral reasoning, um, you know, logical reasoning, things where there isn't just a cut and dried answer um, for, you know, how do you approach thinking about some of these things? Um, so that's another thing that you can do that I think is just so much more useful when it's transparent as opposed to, um, you know, just this debate and everybody's coming with their minds made up and like, you know, that's what it is. That's all it is. Does that help, Sarah? Yeah. Olivia, did you have another one? Yep. Yeah, just going off of this point, how do you just deal with spaces where um, a lot of times, especially recently when handling conversations around social reform, I've noticed that it's always one group who feels pressured to speak and another group who feels pressured to respond, um, whether that be in a way of support or whether that be in a way of opposition. How do you kind of just like break down the barrier of, all right, one group has to speak for the rest or one group has to introduce the opinion to um, that will just set like the norm for the conversation. Because if I'll speak personally, um, when it comes to issues of black people, I feel like I have to say something to set a tone about like, all right, obviously I won't like if someone brings up this point or this point, but I, I also don't want to do that because I feel like that will silence other people who don't want to, uh, who want to disagree, but don't want to attack me personally. Um, so how do you deal with those kinds of situations is what I'm asking. Yeah, I think one of the things, and, and, and thank you for, you know, speaking, being candid about your experience, you know, that burden of representation, you know, if you're the only woman in a group or you're the only person of color, or you're the only, you know, like, you know, and, and sometimes it can, you know, sometimes it could happen that, you know, like, you know, you could be hanging around with a bunch of, you know, you understand what I'm saying. Uh, the burden of representation of feeling like you have to speak on behalf of a group, that's not fair to anybody, right? And so I think that can be explicitly one of the things that you say um, to lay out that nobody's going to speak, you know, just as we're not going to make a generalization about an entire group. Right. No one should be expected to speak on behalf of an entire group. Like that's just not, you know, that's not fair to do to lay that out as an expectation at the outset. Um, you're absolutely right. It's a difficult dynamic. And when it's not said, when it's not explicit, um, that's where I think it gets weirder. You know, um, again, it, it's not something you necessarily you lay out on the first, you know, the first day of French one, you know, for example. But if you take up these issues, if you take up these kinds of conversations in class, um, you know, very soon it should be made explicit. You know, that's, you know, that's not cool to do for anybody. Um, but you need to, but I, I, I think it's important to be explicit about that as a norm. Does that make sense? Does that help? Yes, definitely. Um, and I'm sorry, I missed, I missed a note. Is it Ava or Eva? Uh, yeah, Eva. Eva. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I was wondering, there's a lot of pressure to sort of stick with facts and logic in political conversations and like make sure everything is backed up with statistics. Um, but I do think there are certain topics where emotions tend to actually play a significant role a lot, a lot of times, like human rights and hate speech and hate crimes, especially. Um, and I guess I'm asking your opinion of like whether emotions really have any place in political discussions and emotionally charged topics. Oh, it's, it's a great question, Eva. I, I mean, I believe they animate all of politics, you know, emotions, right? They do it like we, like we, we tend to, um, you know, a lot of, Activism is rooted in anger, for example, you know, uh, frustrate, you know, like real righteous indignation saying like, you know, the world should not be this way. Right. Um, and so that's what motivates you to go and organize and put on, you know, to get together with a march and stuff like that. So emotion, I think, you know, it does affect a lot of things. Um, I think that part of the difficulty that can happen sometimes, and I, and I think we can't pretend that we're not emotional beings, you know, who don't, you know, have these feelings about, you know, like, you know, you know, especially issues of like right and wrong, those really animated, like, why would you take time after school 
you know, to come and talk about something if you didn't care about it at all, just because you wanted like, really, you're just trying to make yourself look that good on the resume that you're going to turn into Mr. Lear, um, you know, for your college. Like, that's not what it's about, right? Or it shouldn't be. Um, it's because you care, right? But the next level of that, right? It, it, at some point, if you're just going to say, you know, if, if, you're, if you're going to try to persuade somebody of something, then I think then the argument and the logic, um, and it's not necessarily just, you know, facts, but it's, a, it's an argument that, you know, feels reasonable to, to other people, then I think you have to figure out some way to put that together. Um, you know, and so I can, I can tell you passionately that Chunky Monkey is the best flavor of ice cream. I'm right about that, of course, but I won't necessarily be able to persuade you of that because that's, you know, that, that really is a matter of taste. Right. I'm not going to necessarily and you're going to have other people who may be lactose intolerant. You know, it might not fit for you. Um, so I'm going to have to resign myself to say, I believe Chunky Monkey is the best. I know it for myself to be the best. But there's some things I will not be able to persuade in an argumentative fashion and convince other people. And that's OK. And I also think it's important, though, um, and maybe this is related. And I, I, I don't want to kind of dismiss and say, like, there's there's this tier and then there's this tier. Sometimes it can be very useful, um, you know, just as, uh, you know, you know, just as Olivia did, you know, to say, in my experience, this is, this is my experience about this particular topic, right? To, to set up a conversation where that's what you do, where you set up what's an exercise, what's called serial testimony. And, and, and which is to say, you're speaking from your own opinion, your, your own experience about a particular topic. It's not about right and wrong. It's not about debate. But in order to put the voices out there, especially the voices who don't feel maybe they have a command of the facts, to set up a meeting to say like, you know, for the first 20 minutes, we're going to do this. Everybody talks for one minute. There's going to be a timer, right? Because some people will say one minute and then they'll go like longer than this. And I can send you guys, if you're interested, I can send you all, if you're interested, I have a, I have a one page handout on how to do this. Uh, but it's really cool, um, you know, but there's no debate about it. There's no, uh, you know, agreement or disagreement. There's no referring to what he, she, or they said earlier. It's just you go around and hear different people's viewpoints on a topic. And that can be, you know, that can be a wonderful exercise, especially when something's raw. You know, if you have a, a terrible situation, uh, you know, a really hard situation, and you're just, you don't necessarily know, and you haven't done the research about it, you just feel, you know, whatever, to be able to have a space that you can come into where it's not set up like a logical debate, it's not even set up like, you know, you know, just the truth seeking uh, free for all, but it's set up as a place that we're going to hear from other people today because something awful just happened or something really poignant just happened. That can be a really helpful exercise, especially when something's new um, and especially when something's really hard because it's another kind of conversational harness that you put on there where the obligation isn't necessarily to back up everything that you say to come in as if you thought through everything. Um, that can be useful. So that's called serial testimony. And I'd be happy to share that with you. Not as something you do every time, you know, because um, there's space for all kinds of conversations, but that can be helpful, you know, especially if you want to draw people into meetings where they just don't feel competent arguing about politics because they, they don't get politics because politics is too complicated. Um, it seems complicated because it is complicated, you know, and, and some people have grown up hearing political conversations at the dinner table and some people never have because it, you know, there were other conversations or no conversation, you know, so that's, that's an alternative. It's a great, it's a great point to bring up Eva. Maybe Andrew gets the last, uh, last question. 
Yes, Andrew. Yeah. Um, so there's just been there's been this trend at Pingree that I've noticed uh, amongst my peers and my friends that like many are scared to speak up um, or like just even discuss politics. It's like this taboo because I mean, as you mentioned, politics is complicated and it's also scary at the same time. And as a result, many people become like apolitical. They choose, oh, I'm not going to talk about politics. I don't like politics. Or like if they do enter political discussion, they like restrain themselves, maybe even like self-censor to an extreme. Um, and ultimately, like that's kind of a bad thing. Like. And that there's no discourse about vital issues that are affecting our society and like people just like keeping things, keep their ideas to themselves. There's no discourse. So like how do we remove this barrier of entry to politics in a way, like lower the threshold and like maybe not make it so personally involved and like lower the stakes in a way, I guess, and make it so that like people aren't as scared to just discuss politics and like make it so it's not so taboo as it is like right now. That has to do with the tone that you set. And so in a classroom, you know, it's your, it's your teachers usually who are setting that tone and you participate in it and it can be done well or it can be done, you know, really not, you know, not in a helpful way. So you kind of feel scared. I know that some of your teachers do have concerns that especially because they, you know, if they have an impression that many of the, if you've got kids, for example, who tend to be more liberal or progressive, more democratic leaning, maybe um, that kids who don't, who don't agree with that might be more hesitant because of the social dimension. And they say like, you know, I might be hesitant to speak it's very important to set the tone to establish it. And you can do it much more easily in a, in a club that you control um, to say like, that's not what we're about. You know, there's not a right answer here. We're here because we, you know, we recognize that this can be challenging. We want to figure that out. Um, but it comes down ultimately to the questions of the relationship, the respect, the trust that you're able to, uh, you know, have with that other person um, where you take out those painful social dimensions, those difficult social dimensions where you can feel like you're getting judged because you don't know what to say. Um, you know, and you really have the sense that you're engaging with somebody who's taking your ideas seriously and seeing you as a full person um, endowed with inalienable dignity. <laughs> okay. Well, Mr. Horn, thank you for coming on. It's been really great getting to talk to you. Uh, I think it'd also be cool to see like what your thoughts on the politics club and how we run things are, but that's, that is for another day. Uh, in the oh, meantime, this thank is a you blast, all guys. Yeah, this is a blast to be happy to come back and talk about that and, and hear about it, you know, hear from you about it. And I just want to thank you all for your interest it's really cool to see people who are passionate and, you know, and wanting to think about this. Um, it's one of the things that we have to get better at. We have to get better at it as a country, um, talking with people we disagree with and figuring out how to, how to do that respectfully. Um, so keep up the great work and please be in touch. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you so much. That's it for today's special bonus edition of Point of Learning brought to you by the Pingree Politics Podcast, which is hosted and edited by Marcus Brotman. The co-host is Sean Lyons with intro and outro music by Max Brotman. The advisor to the Pingree Politics Club is Dr. Zachary Wakefield. My great thanks to Tim Lear for connecting me with all of them and the thoughtful young citizens whose questions and ideas you heard on today's show. On the show page, I've got images of most of the civil discourse slides I used during my presentation to the club, as well as a link to the handout I mentioned on Serial Testimony, a conversational harness that was developed by Dr. Peggy McIntosh and pioneered by her colleagues at the National Seed Project. Check out the Point of Learning episode menu for more about Peggy McIntosh and the good folks at Seed. 
Thanks, as always, to Shafel James for Point of Learning intro, outro, and, on this episode, supplemental music. A proud member of the Lyceum Consortium for Educational Podcasts, Point of Learning is produced by me here in sunny Buffalo, New York. I'm Peter Horn, and I'll be back at you in just a few weeks with registered dietitian Britt Schumann-Humbert, star of the sensational YouTube cooking series RD Unfiltered. See you then. In general, uh, the... Uh, 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 was just, I was distracted by the chat there. It says, feel free to add some questions. And now I'm like, I lost it. I don't even have my answers. I can't even put my answers in the chat. I'm uh, just playing. Um,